Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I'm passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. Ah, these are some of my all-time favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. When reading the Bible, we all come from different perspectives, and it's no secret that I love the land, geography, cultural context, and archaeology. And at the Israel Bible Center, we talk a lot about biblical and extra-biblical text. We talk about languages of the biblical text, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and the cultural waters that people were swimming in in the ancient Near East or the Greco-Roman world. But those are not the only tools that help us understand the biblical text and the people represented in the Bible. So not that long ago, three of us from the IBC faculty decided to have a conversation about the role of archaeology in studying the Bible. Does archaeology act like a language? What can it contribute to our understanding? Now, this is a huge topic, so we thought we would frame the conversation around Tel Es-Sultan, the Old Testament site of Jericho, because that site presents opportunities for us to re-examine what the Bible is doing in the Joshua narrative. Around the table today is Dr. Yeshayev Gruber, Dr. Nicholas Shazer, and myself. Up first is the topic of what the role of archaeology is. So here's one quotation that I pulled up from a scholar who uh, was active about 100 years ago, a century ago, ago, and Richardson says, perhaps next to the study of the Bible itself in the original languages, there is no more important study for the earnest student than that of biblical archaeology. From mounds and graves, innumerable objects have been recovered and stored in the museums of the world, and we are now able to see the whole of that ancient world almost as well as the men of that old world saw it. In fact, we can see what they could not see. And by that, I think he's talking about underlying connections, you know, across cultures, across time periods, things like this. Now, this was written in 1915. We're now in 2023. And I mean, has there been anything significant in archaeology between 1915 and 2023? (laughs) This quote is very interesting. And it points to even just in the vocabulary that is in this quote, it points to some of the big changes that have happened in archaeology in like throughout the Fertile Crescent in the land of the Bible. One is he is using the term biblical archaeology, which is, I mean, archaeology has a soft start. You know, it was a lot of Europeans interested in Egypt and they would just go in and plunder treasures and then leave and take it back to their home. As this process of archaeology shifted into what is now Israel and Palestine, then we start to get a little bit more biblical archaeology and people talk about this time frame in the the early 1900s, almost to the mid-century is people would dig with a Bible in one hand and a spade in the other, right? The whole element of archaeology, everything about it was to prove the way that we were reading the text. 
So we were digging to find things that validated the historicity of the Bible. That has changed. So the process of archaeology has become a lot more systematized. It's way more scientific and exact and precise in the way that digs are happening now and the records that are being kept. And no longer are archaeologists or good archaeologists who are in the land. They're not proving anything about the Bible. They're exploring history and artifacts And then they pull this into the study of understanding the Bible. So the elements of what he is saying in this quote are are true to a certain extent, but maybe we do it with a little bit more caution now than ever we did in the past. And of course, it's a big question for many readers of the Bible. You know, does it's often phrased as does archaeology confirm or contradict the Bible? You know, that's one question. And Jericho is sort of ground zero for that question in in certain respects. More on this in next week's episode, because it's really quite a complicated story that relies on guessing about when the exodus from Egypt was and then dating various layers of remains in the ancient site. But we need to establish some background information first. But I think the way you phrased it is very helpful because there are different fields of study. You know, archaeology is one field and it doesn't have to be dependent on just reading the text. It can be dependent on digging into the ground and seeing what you find. And then later you can look at the text and you can look at other elements of history and you can look at archaeology and see how it may or may not fit together. Cindy, you didn't mention if there were any discoveries important discoveries between 1915 and now. And I think oh, we gosh. can say that <laughs> that although Richardson in his day was saying that we have, what did he say, innumerable objects, we have many times more objects now that have been discovered in the last um, century plus, uh, not to mention extraordinary discoveries like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which yeah. belong to both textual studies and archaeology. There's significant things that are happening. And the way we're interpreting archaeology keeps changing. So Mm -hmm. even in the last two years, there's a very familiar site, the Herodian. It's very close to Jerusalem. And I've been there dozens and dozens and dozens of times um, explaining the archaeology. And then during COVID, they uncovered more of the site that changed the whole interpretation and how we talk about the Herodian. So it's It is interesting. There's perpetually every single day something being found, ideas being changed. Uh, It's it's fantastic. It also makes it hard to keep up, but it's really exciting. Sure. And I think that's true of every field of science. You know, science is always changing, always developing. There are always new theories, new evidence, new interpretations. It's not static. And uh, in a sense, you could say about the text of the Bible, well, it's the same. You know, at this point, it's set. On the other hand, we are, again, still developing new interpretations. We're coming to better understandings or at least different understandings of ancient vocabulary and culture and so forth. If you've been around Israel Bible podcast for a bit, then you know that Nicholas Shazer is a text guy. It's time for him to jump in and share his perspective on how archaeology influences the reading of the text, if at all. To be sure, when archaeological finds occur and I hear about them, I'm usually reading about them in an archaeological journal um, uh, or sometimes a newspaper. Certainly the ones that are coming out of Israel will often cover these finds. 
I'm always very excited. Uh, so, I mean, archaeology is very much Bible adjacent, I would say, um, probably even more than Bible adjacent. It, it, as Cindy was saying, it, it really does overlap oftentimes with the narrative. Sometimes it's not exactly overlapping, which actually makes things quite interesting for both the archaeologist and the Bible reader. But yeah, like, you know, it, it's on the, on the one level, it's found archaeology um, and the history of Israel is foundational to the work that I do. So, for instance, when say like, what was it, guys, the, the, the King Hezekiah, the signet seal of King Hezekiah that was famously found, you know, when something like that happens or a biblical name occurs or you find something that says the house of David on it, like the Tel Dan Stila. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are, I mean, regardless of how we're interpreting these, you know, it, it, it's exciting nonetheless. I would then also say there's a second layer to the work that I do. And we'll get into this as we look at Jericho, which is um, kind of sifting between the archaeology and the history. And then also then the theology or particularly the narrative theology of the text. So we're going to read, for instance, that like, for seven days, they walked around Jericho. There, there's, a, there's a special symbolism to that number. And so that's kind of the layer of, of theological art and narrative that archaeology can inform that. But, but sometimes we need to almost read the Bible, not against the archaeology, but sort of above the archaeology in order to get the whole picture um, of what both of these aspects of biblical studies can get us. You know, living in Israel, it seems like pretty much every week there's some discovery in archaeology that is claimed to be earth-shattering and completely transformative, or it confirms this, or it contradicts that. And some of them really are uh, quite remarkable, as you mentioned. And and the examples you gave, um, we could think of some others, uh, show at least that there is some correspondence between the narrative in the Bible and the narrative that emerges from archaeology. Now, the details people are going to argue about forever, but there is some sort of correspondence in terms of names and especially in terms of places, you know, towns that are mentioned in the Bible that that are then discovered by archaeology. Or there's, I think, even an example, I think it's south of Beit Shemesh, uh, is it called Sha'avayim? Um, the, the town of two gates, and they found two gates in the city, and they believe it's that town that was mentioned in the gates or She'oraim, something like that. And so, you know, there, there is some kind of correspondence um, between these fields, uh, although the details sometimes remain to be hashed out. Before we go on, there are some basic facts about archaeology that are important to explain. For one, the vocabulary word tell, T-E-L, This refers to an artificial mound made up of layers of civilization. So imagine a layer cake with distinction between each section of cake and the thin layer of fruit or icing. Imagine each of those layers representing one level of a city. It gets destroyed in war or by a natural catastrophe. And the next generation comes in and rebuilds, creating a different layer on our cake. Over time, these artificial hills grow quite large. Then in the modern age, when archaeologists go to discover who lived in that place, the most recent remains are on top of the hill. And as you dig lower or cut into the cake, you're going backwards in time. 
What helps you identify layers in the tell? Well, pottery is the best way. A skilled archaeologist can look at the quality of pottery and then the type of clay that's used, the design on the front, the type of finish, the size and style, and all of that can help them date the layer of the tell. And it is fascinating to have history play out in physical forms before your eyes. We can see a shift between Philistine occupation of a city and Israelite occupation just based on the pottery. And all of that just helps us understand the world of the Bible even better, which means we have a better understanding of the biblical text. And so the text doesn't change throughout time, but our interpretation of the text does change over time. The biblical authors are swimming in a certain kind of water, that it's kind of incumbent upon us as modern readers to understand and to learn how to swim in. Um, That's not to say that the interpretation of the text can't be flowing. Uh, It often has been throughout the history of interpretation. Um, It just takes a really cursory look at say, the rabbis, the, the people who lived in the time of Jesus and after to see how many interpretations one can have of a, of a given text. Now, not all of those are equally great interpretations. Um, and I think that there are better ones than others. I, that is, I think you can isolate the best translations, maybe one or the best one or two choices. Um, but the Bible for sure is a, is a living document insofar as it's going to hit each new reader in a different way. I want to anchor the text in something identifiable. Some of the sometimes I'll tell people, you know, the best part about the Bible is that we all have the same text that we can look at. You know, like however we tra- translate it or interpret it, at least we have the same anchor, uh, and so we can kind of work from there. Nick, I like what you're pointing out in terms of we we all globally have the same text, and then there's lots of different translations and interpretations of the text. And I think um, archaeology is helpful not to be on par with the biblical text. It doesn't, it can't tell us a complete story, but it can tell us a little bit about the lifestyle of the people in the text. And that can just be really helpful. It's it's another lens, it's another source, it's another way for us to be understanding the biblical text. And sometimes archeology span points to and points out our assumptions of the text. So things that we didn't even realize either a cultural inference or I've just always heard it told me that way kind of inference. So whatever assumption we're bringing to the text, archaeology can point out that assumption and challenge that assumption, which is really good because it forces us back to the text. Now, before we get into the archaeology related to Jericho, the text we're going to be in conversation with first is from Joshua 6, 2 through 5. This is when the Lord says to Joshua to march around the city once with all the armed men for six days. They have seven priests carrying seven trumpets in front of the ark. And on the seventh day, the people march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear the final long blast, then the army is supposed to shout and the walls of the city collapse. Now, as a kid, this was so confusing to me. I lived in a large city and there was no way anyone could ever walk around it in a day, much less seven times in a day. 
But when you see the archaeological site, the Tell for Jericho, it makes more sense. This artificial mound of layers of occupation, the size of the city inside the walls is only about one acre or less than a city block. Well, I guess that depends on your city. But let's get back to Nick's work with numbers in the Jericho text. What I want to try to underscore here in the Joshua narrative is that when you come to dating of this material, there's also the biblical numbers that people are relying on. And those biblical numbers are usually symbolic. I often tell students that the, the number... Um, that you get in a biblical narrative is far bigger, far weightier, far more theological than the digit on the page. Well, you know, anybody who's familiar with the first chapter of Genesis will know this and know that Joshua is recapitulating, to use that fancy word again, recapitulating the seven days of creation. Uh, So what we've got here is walking around the city for six days. That is um, the, you know, the people of war going around I mean, that, I'm sure that would be arduous work to walk around the city for six days. And this, of course, is the same amount of days that God works to create the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1. And then it's the seventh day that the big climax happens. In Genesis, what happens? God rests on the seventh day and sanctifies the Shabbos, sanctifies the Sabbath day. Whereas here, though, it's a little bit different. There's like a, a spin on the Genesis narrative. Because what do we have? On the seventh day, you'll march around the city seven times. So it's like double the amount of work, I guess seven times the amount of work on the seventh day. So we can see already that there's something interesting going on. There's something different going on. It's it's built on Genesis 1, but it's diverging from Genesis 1. Why? Because what the writer's trying to show us is that this is like a destructive version of God's creation, positive creation. So this is this is a destruction in Joshua, whereas God in, in Genesis uses six days of work and seventh day of rest in order to create. So what do we want to do with that theologically? I think there's all sorts of things that we would do with that theologically, and we don't need to go into them right now. But what, what, what the, the seven number does, it actually just sets an interpretive framework. So at least there's our anchor, right? As Bible readers, at least we all know we're working with a nod back to creation. That's obvious. That's actually indisputable. Then the question becomes, well, why is the Joshua narrative different? Why is Joshua narrative? Is it trying to say, you know, that there's some underlying negativity to destroying Jericho? Well, I mean, if that's the case, God told them to do it. So I know that that seems a little bit odd to me. Um, does it does it mean that you know as Israel goes on that this is a kind of um, ominous day, right? So there's this kind of negative-y kind of destructive valence here, and that's going to come back back to bite the Israelites. Maybe honestly, I don't really know for sure. I think there are multiple uh, ways that you could go with this, but but the key would be is to is to anchor ourselves in that seven day material and then work build our interpretation and discussion from there. Um, so th- th- this is kind of the, the uh, I guess uh, what I would say is like a concretization of, of the interpretive options that I've given so far. So you know I'm asking this question gen- uh, genuinely. Is it seven days of creation as in Genesis or is it seven days of destruction as in Joshua? Well, I think you could take it a number of ways because prior to Jericho, 
seven days, as I said, had been associated with positive creation, both the organization of the world on the one hand, and then actually it's going to tie us back into um, the creation of the people of Israel, the establishment of Israel at Sinai, which we already alluded to the fact that the early Joshua narrative is a recapitulation of that story too. So again, it's, it's pumping on all sorts of cylinders here, and it's kind of up to the biblical reader to parse it all out. But in Exodus chapter 20, so when we get the Ten Commandments, this is uh, Exodus 20, 11, it says that for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day, and the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in Exodus itself, we've got that recollection of Genesis chapter one. So again, there's that recapitulation theme that we've been seeing. Um, but then we get Exodus 24, 16, which is the um, tabernacling of the glory of God on Sinai before God gives the Torah to Moses. It says that the glory of the Lord, the, the kavod Hashem, tabernacled or dwelt, the verb uh, here, shachan, is the verb underlying the noun mishkan, which is the Hebrew word for tabernacle in the wilderness, the, the kind of um, you know, the tent the Israelites could kind of take down and build up again. And that's where God would come meet with Moses and the people of Israel. So I wanted to get that tabernacling language there. The glory of God comes in tabernacles on Mount Sinai and the cloud covers Sinai for six days. There's our six days again. And on the seventh day, God called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, Here's where I was, I was kind of alluding to the fact like, okay, so should we be taking the Joshua narrative, the Joshua 6 narrative, as like a negative inverse of the positive creation of Genesis 1? That's possible. But again, like God told them to go into Jericho in the first place. And the number seven is the number of perfection or completeness in Hebrew thought as well. So the Jericho story may be saying they just did a completely good job and that completely good job made the walls fall down. Um, on the other hand, you could read it through the lens of this, of Exodus chapter 24 and the giving of the Torah, because what does God do on the seventh day here? Not rest. God gets down to work, calls to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, and enumerates the work of creating the Torah, creating the constitution of Israel. So, so God is actually malleable and will do different things on the seventh day per the necessary work that needs to be done. Um, and this opens up a whole can of worms in later Jewish thought with people like Philo of Alexandria or the later rabbis when they ask questions like, does God work on the Sabbath? You know, like uh, it says that God rests on the first Sabbath, but that does, does that mean that God rests on every seventh day? And then you link into G to Jesus and John's gospel where he's accused of doing quote unquote work on the Sabbath and says, I'm working today and my father is also working today. Um, so there's all of this cool stuff that opens up and, and the, the, the kind of what you get in the New Testament with all that interpretive stuff and in later Jewish tradition, it all starts here because the Bible gives us similar narratives and yet different narratives and asks the reader to like engage, like do the hard work of, of pulling this apart and talking it through. This is only the beginning of the conversation. Next week, we get into issues related to placing Joshua and Jericho on the historical timeline, and then the challenges we get with the archaeological record at the site of Jericho. 
But then we also have to get into how biblical writers use the history from Jericho to add multiple layers of meaning to their writings. If you like conversations like this where we explore various aspects of interpreting the Bible, and if you are not yet connected to the vast resources of IBC, consider enrolling as a student. From the comfort of your home and at your own pace, you can take classes and within a year, earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for editing, mixing, and adding in all the good sounds. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. <laughs>